Praise the Lord, everybody. Okay. Super glad to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Judah. I'm one of the pastors here at Bridgeway. Our senior pastor is on loan this weekend to another church. We have instructed them to return him to us in the condition that he was given to them in. So we'll be excited when he's back. Uh, but for the weekend, it's us. Um, and I, I, I love God's word. I love preaching. I love church. So this is like all my favorite things. I'm really excited. Also, I just want to acknowledge, uh, I have some family that came in from North Carolina uh, to visit all the way from North Carolina. So I'm just saying, hey to y'all. I'm glad y'all are, glad y'all are here. Y'all be nice to them now. Be nice to them so they go back and say nice things about the church. Uh, I'm excited to get into God's word with you. I was uh, excited about preaching this weekend. Um, but one of the temptations that I face as a preacher when trying to craft a message is the temptation to overextend in seeking new material or material that's novel, that's, that's shiny, that's new. Because we live in a society where, you, you know, people, people are always chasing after what's new after what's novel, after, after what they haven't seen before. And so it's tempting to worry that if I don't find something new, that people won't listen to the message. And I keep, I'm in this season in my life where uh, God is really, really grounding me in the gospel. And he keeps giving me these gospel-centric messages um, and is calling me to that because I am more wired as a discipler than an evangelist. Um, and God is just calling me back to that. And so I confess when I, when I looked at the passage that I was assigned to teach this week, because, you know, we prepare our sermons a year in advance. We're getting ready to start on 2024. I, I struggled with it because the passage we're going to unlock today is, is very straightforward and it's just about the gospel. And so I read through it and I read through it again. I read through it again. And I was like, all right, Lord, like it's the gospel, but what else? And I felt them words come tumbling into my spirit. What do you mean? What else? I said, ooh, 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 Lord, ooh. <laughs> let me take some bass out my voice and, and talk to you like I got some sense. But what I'm realizing is that uh, we have to reactivate our appetite for the gospel, right? We have to, to, to reactivate it, and we have to continue to strengthen and develop our ability to communicate the gospel well, it is a very simple message, this gospel that we're talking about. It very simply says that God created people with the intention that those people would love him, that they would love him more than anything else. And people, as people do, chose to love themselves more than they loved their God. And so God realized that that was going to put a, a tear in the relationship that we had with him and he wouldn't stand for it. So God, God's self came down as Jesus and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he died the death that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. And the dope part about the story is that he didn't stay dead that he was resurrected, and that in that resurrection, he brings us with him. What that means is that if we put our lives in Jesus, that then we have died and been resurrected with him so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see all of our issues and all of our flaws. What he sees is Jesus, and that allows us to be in relationship with him forever. That's the gospel. And uh, yeah, y'all can get excited about it. I don't mind. I don't mind. In the passage I want to dig into today, we're going to see Paul the Apostle 
model for us how to frame and share the good news and how to do that regardless of situations, of circumstances, of conditions. One of the challenges that we face as believers is that often we see sharing the gospel, sharing the good news at best as a secondary activity to the rest of our lives. And and we only want to do it when it is wholly convenient and wholly easy and comfortable. We have these stereotypes about the type of people that share the gospel. We picture the raging introvert with the big personality, the person that's good on stage, the person that's eloquent with their words. And because of these stereotypes, we say, well, gospel sharing must not be what I'm called to because I don't look like that right? And we can't imagine ourselves being like those people. I can't tell you how many times in my own personal life I have had a gospel sharing opportunity and not known how to start or what to say or where to begin. And I've even, this is even as a pastor, I have, I have had moments where I've chosen not to share the gospel because the conditions uh, around that opportunity weren't what I felt was ideal. But in the text, we're going to see Paul step over that. We're going to see him lay it out for us, and and we're going to see him show us the effective way to share the gospel. And what it really starts with, and you can write this down, is it starts by recognizing that my story didn't begin with me. My story didn't begin with me. All right, look, I, I was grounded the entirety of middle school. You understand? My mama's here. She can witness. I was grounded sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. I was a mouthy child. I also liked to fight. And the Lord had woken up my entrepreneur spirit. And so I would go to the Albertsons and steal candy and sell it for 100% profit on the campus. Uh, uh, The principals don't like that sort of thing. I was expelled twice. And what would happen is I would would get in trouble and be grounded for a couple weeks or maybe a month. And then right before it was time for me to get like off of grounded, I would do something else. And then another week would be added. And so that turned into all the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. As a result, I did not watch much television during that time, and I learned to love reading, and I read everything. I I read so much, and I really fell in love with fantasy fiction. I I love fantasy fiction. I am a Harry Potter fan, Ravenclaw gang, and I don't care how y'all feel about it. So I I read a lot of books as as a young person. And the thing about fantasy fiction, especially old fantasy fiction, is that those stories often begin like this. They say, once upon a time, there was a princess locked in a tower, right? Or once upon a time, there was a, a handsome prince. And that works real good for fairy tales. It doesn't work real well for the gospel because the gospel is not a fairy tale, right? The gospel is not fantasy. It's not fiction. It's not folklore. It is facts, right? And so what we're going to see, and I'm going to point this out over and over again over our next 30 or so minutes together, is in this passage that we're going to look at, Paul is preaching a sermon. And what you're going to notice is that he continues to focus on the things that actually happened, right? He doesn't focus a lot on philosophy or even theology. Listen, Christianity is not uh, just about a philosophy or even a set of ethics. Those things are involved in Christianity, but Christianity is fundamentally about a proclamation of facts that concern what God has done. 
Sharing the gospel is an exercise in running God's record. And what you'll find when you run his record is he's never lost. He's never failed. It's why when the text says the, tra- the, 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 the robe of our Lord fills the temple, the train fills the temple, it's why it's profound because a king would wear a robe whose length corresponds with how many battles he's won. The longer the robe, the more he's won. So when the text says the, 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 the train of his robe fills the temple, it's saying that he's never lost. It's saying all our God does is win. For my sports people, he is seven billion, 668,000 million, gazillion, gajillion, and oh, right? However you got to wrap your mind around this idea that, that God, God has won. And so all that is required of us, and it's your fill in the blank in your bulletin or if you're following along with us online, all that is required of us is to say what happened. Just say what happened. One of my favorite quotes is from the uh, Nobel winning uh, Christian author Robert Lowell, and he says, yet why not just say, just say what happened. And so when I'm when I'm talking about sharing the gospel, when I'm, when I'm trying to figure it out, I don't need to begin by saying, once upon a time, there was a boy named Judah who got in a lot of trouble in school, because that's not how my story begins. This is how my story actually begins. In the beginning, God. That's the beginning of my story, and that's the beginning of your story. In the beginning, God. And then we have the responsibility to say what happened. And we have to do that regardless of how we feel or who we're with or, 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 or who's listening, because our God's story must be told. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin at verse 13. So Acts chapter 13, verse 13. If you left your Bible in the car, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. You are welcome to use it. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Uh, We're jumping right in the middle of this chapter, and in it, Paul the Apostle has been a part of uh, this church in Antioch. And they have been worshiping and kind of doing the church thing together. And then quite suddenly, God calls and commissions Paul and his friend Barnabas and says, I want you guys to leave the church in Antioch and go and share the gospel. And so they end up traveling and doing ministry, kind of the first missionary uh, trip ever taken. And so they're, they're out spreading the gospel and they end up in Seleucia and then in Cyprus and Salamis. And one of the things that, that I'm going to really draw your attention to is that as they go trying to do this thing that they're called to do, uh, there are things that occur that make that less than ideal. Let's read verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And and I'm going to stop right there because, again, what I want you to see is in this one verse how much has shifted in the life of Paul, this missionary. Uh, I want you to know that kingdom building work has shifts in it that are often uncomfortable. In Acts chapter 13, verse 7, which Pastor Lance walked us through last week, um, this team of missionaries was called Barnabas and Saul, right? Saul is Paul's previous name. What it indicated is that 
Barnabas and Saul were together leading this team, that they had kind of a co-leadership sort of thing. But now when we look at chapter 13, verse 13, which we just read, the group is described as Paul and company as Paul and his companions, denoting that there has been a leadership shift, that now Paul is operating as the leader by himself, that he's operating as the CEO, as, as the president of the group. And it says that John has left the group and decided to go home. And we don't know exactly why John Mark decided to go home to Jerusalem. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he was afraid of the reality that they're in this mountainous region of, of Antioch and it's dangerous and it's hard. Uh, maybe he didn't trust Paul to continue leading them uh, because Galatians tells us that Paul was sick at this time, that he may have had altitude sickness, being that Antioch is about 3,600 feet elevation, or he might have gotten malaria, some scholars think. Maybe John resented the fact that leadership had gone from Barnabas and Saul to now just Saul or just Paul. But for whatever reason, John says, I'm out. And he goes back home. And what we know is that Paul did not appreciate this. Right? It, he didn't appreciate that his friend and ministry partner had decided to leave because it was disruptive. And so we see in this verse all of this shift happening. There's, there's a shift in leadership and a shift in health and a shift in the team and a shift in location. And still, the gospel must be proclaimed. Still, Paul has a responsibility to do what God has called him to do. I remember how afraid I was to come and work at Bridgeway. I had not worked at such a big church, and I was so scared that I was going to come and pull that curtain back and see a hot mess. You know how you've heard stories about big churches and what they got going on in the, in the backseat of the car. I, was so, I kept trying to trick the people who were interviewing me into like telling on themselves if there was some mess going on. It was a shift for me a shift in how big the church was, a shift in where it was. I went from doing ministry in Sacramento County to doing ministry in Placer County. I don't know if you know this or not, but those counties have a few differences. <laughs> I went from, from, from being the senior pastor, so I'm the boss, I don't answer to nobody, to now I have to submit to the authority of my leader. It was a shift, and yet I was still called. Yet I still had a responsibility to do what I was supposed to do. And listen, if you are only willing to do what you are called to do, which is to make disciples, if you're only willing to do that if the environment is familiar, if you're only willing to do it uh, when, when, when the environment is stable and feels safe, then what you end up practicing is a partial obedience. I don't want to practice partial obedience. I want to practice full, complete obedience. I want to do what God has called me to do completely all the time, even with the reality of shifting. The reality is sometimes things go exactly how we planned, exactly how we imagined and anticipated, and sometimes they don't. But regardless, God's story is supposed to be told, and it's supposed to be told by you. We have to move out of this mindset of waiting for the perfect time to share the good news. We don't get to neglect our leaders', our leaders uh, instructions to us because life gets rocky. Life is rocky for Paul. He is not feeling well. He's feeling abandoned by his friend. He's entering into this new territory, but he still understood the assignment that my life is to be a reflection of Christ no matter how I feel 
or what is happening because before I am anything else, I'm a witness. That's your first part of your identity. Before you are American, before you are black or white, before you are male, before you are Republican or Democrat, you are a witness first. And so Paul, despite all of this shifting, he continues on his mission. Look at verse 14. It says, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So, so what kind of word were the people in the synagogue seeking? What, what kind of, of word are they supposed to have? Because it's not like this was a contracted speaking engagement, right? Where they had been brought into the church and they were put on the program to give a sermon. No, they, they just went to church on a normal Saturday morning like they always did as community members. And, and the, the community, the leaders of the church say, listen, do, do you have a word? Well, what kind of word do you want? A word of encouragement. So when I'm considering, how do I share the gospel? What you can know for sure is if nothing else, it ought to be encouraging. That you ought to have an encouraging word in your mouth, an encouraging word in your back pocket. You can just pull out on the drop of a hat, on the, on the drop of a dime, no problem. Listen, you don't have to be a theological mastermind to be an encourager. You don't have to understand all of the pretext and the context and all the pieces to be able to encourage somebody in Jesus, to tell somebody that Jesus loves them, always has loves them, and has their back. And what I've learned is that people are, people are so desperate to feel good that if they knew that if they went into a Christian church that they would be encouraged, the houses of God would be packed all across the world. I mean, just packed wall to wall, ceiling to floor. I mean, we'd have to turn people away so we don't violate the fire code. I, I, too often, though, when people come to church, what they experience is disrespect, dishonor, and shaming, and exclusivity. And what I'm telling you right now is that the empowered church, and that is the church that we are trying to become, that, that the empowered church is the church of encouragement. That when you walk through the doors, your life starts being transformed. Because there's somebody right there with a big old smile. Hey, welcome to Bridge. We're so glad that you're here. Come on in. Do you like coffee? Listen, the cafe is right here, and the, the drip coffee is free. If you like that, that's for those of you that complain about the taste of the drip coffee. It's free. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's free. Hallelujah. And then, and then somebody to say, listen, can I show you to a seat? And if you don't have any place to sit, you can sit with me. And is this your family? If people knew that if they walked into the church, that's what they would experience, boy, we'd have big church problems. And so Paul is invited to share this word of encouragement. And so he stands up and he begins to talk. And in verses 16 through 31, he begins to run an account, a, a survey of Israel's history. And in this survey of Israel's history, Paul begins to recount the really important things that have happened in the life of Israel. He, he talks about the choosing of the patriarchs. These are the big dogs in, in Israel's history. And he talks about how Israel is enslaved by Egypt, but then God frees them brings them right on out. And he talks about how 
They struggled trying to figure out what does it mean to be like God's people? And they kind of bumped their heads wandering around through the wilderness. And he talks about how he began to give them structure for, for their nation, this, this nation that once was a family that now is a nation. And he talks about the, the calling of the judges and, and the creation of the monarchy. But the thing that Paul is doing as he traces this thread through all these events is he's, he's saying that it all led up to Jesus that it all led up to Jesus. And, and here's what I know. It all has to lead to Jesus. We spend a lot of time trying to lead people to church, and trying to lead people to programs, and trying to lead people to pastors. And listen, while our, our church is incredible, uh, at some point the church is going to disappoint you. At some point, I promise you, Bridgeway is going to disappoint you. It may be a small disappointment, like we ran out of parking, but which could very well happen. Pray for us. But at some point, the church is going to disappoint you. At some point, the pastor is going to disappoint you. Lance is the most incredible person I've ever had the privilege of serving under. At some point, he will disappoint you. Our programs are good. Our youth program, our middle school, our high school, our programs are dope. But at some point, listen, programs are flawed. I'm not interested in leading somebody to something that will fail them. I'm interested in leading them to someone who won't. And the only person I can guarantee that won't fail you is Jesus. It has to all lead to Jesus. Therefore, the goal of the preacher, the goal of the, the leader, the goal of the Christian, the goal of the small group and the Bible study and the, the youth program and the summer camp and, and all the things, the goal of the church, that is you, is to lead people to Jesus. And so Paul is preaching and he's, he's talking about what happened and he's highlighting all of these important events and how they led to Jesus and this survey of Israel, uh, Israel's history, is also meant to demonstrate that, that God has a plan for history, that God has a plan for your history, that, that somehow God is so sovereign and so big that his hand is in everything that has ever happened. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that God caused everything that's ever happened in history, but his hand is in it moving the pieces. And, and Paul wants us to see ourselves with a sense of connection to that plan, the, the reality that you are directly connected to God's eternal plan that includes history. Jesus is the goal of history, and we are in Jesus, and therefore then, the direction of our life, no matter where we are or what we got going on, the direction of our life is heading toward redemption. Well, I'll tell you, that will encourage you in a moment when all hell is breaking loose and your life is falling apart and can't tell up from down and down from up to remember that my life is actually bigger than, than just the events that are happening that I can perceive. But because I am directly involved with God's overarching plan to win and save the world, then no matter what's going on in my life, I can be a little bit encouraged. I can wake up optimistic because the direction of my life is flowing toward redemption. And that means that, that I can be reminded that while a lot has happened and a lot is happening and a lot will happen. I just read somebody's dissertation about uh, climate change. That thing scared me half to death. I said, I'm never leaving the house again. <laughs> so a lot is going to happen, right? 
but we can be optimistic all the time. I don't understand Christian pessimists. I, I, I don't quite understand, because we always have something to look forward to. I wanna take a moment and encourage somebody here today or watching online that the outcome for the believer is heaven. And that that is not some theoretical, inarticulated thing that we hope for, but it is a concrete reality that when Jesus comes back, I can't tell you what color the walls in heaven are going to be. I can't tell you what temperature God is going to have the thermostat on, but I will tell you this, all of the things that make this life broken will not exist in heaven. And so that means that every morning when I wake up, I can be excited. I'm going to heaven one day. I can be excited. I don't, today could be the day. Today, where the, the old people would say, when we all get to heaven, uh, that, that we'll rejoice just day in and day out. And that's our reality. I don't say that so that you discount this life that you're living, right? Because the Bible says the kingdom is now and at hand. That means that we're already building this kingdom of God that will culminate when Jesus comes back. But what I am saying is that we have something to look forward to. So Paul is preaching. Despite his circumstances, he starts off by talking about what happens historically and how it leads to Jesus. And then if you look in your text, you'll see he starts talking about John the Baptist. And John was a prophet and Jesus' cousin. His job was to prepare the people for the fact that Jesus was coming. And the thing that Paul highlights about him is that John really knew who Jesus was. He saw him for who he was. He didn't see him as distant the way some of us do, which is why we refuse to open up and worship and, and let God touch those parts of us. He didn't see Jesus as angry and wrathful, right, the way some of us are afraid that he is. We are so afraid that Jesus is angry and disappointed with us. You can't disappoint Jesus because you can't surprise him. He didn't, see, he didn't see Jesus as this, this genie that you can just rub and try to get what you need in a moment of crisis the way some of us do. He saw Jesus for who he was, the one. The one that's greater than all the others. The one who we can absolutely count on and who we also have to answer to. He, he knew that Jesus was more than a teacher. Listen, one of the things that Paul highlights about John in this text is John's humility. Because the reality is you can't share the gospel well if your ego is in the way. Sharing the gospel requires humility. Look at, look at verse 24. It says, before Jesus is coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of, of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And as John painting this cultural picture, uh, you have heard of Jesus and the disciples, yes? And that was a common sort of setup where you would have a prominent rabbi and he would have a lot of his students around him and people would kind of pick which rabbi and group of students they really liked. And uh, over time, it became kind of the cultural expectation that a rabbi's students, his disciples, would serve him, right? Would help him, would, would show up for him kind of as an assistant. 
And as often happens when men get power, uh, the, 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 the rabbis began to take advantage of that. And they would have their disciples do all kinds of things that were demeaning and just like too much, including untying their sandals. It's like, that's a bit much, right? Like, like I, I wanna serve my pastor, but bro, you can untie your own shoes, you're big boy, right? So eventually the, the culture shifted and they said, look, it is not appropriate for you to have your students do these demeaning things. It is not appropriate to have them untie your sandals. And then we have John saying, when it comes to Jesus, I can't be low enough. When it comes to Jesus, I am not worthy to do the thing that the culture says is demeaning right? His humility was astounding. There is something about being low in the presence of God. It's why the woman with the issue of blood was able to get her healing because she got low. And there's something about recognizing that in comparison to Jesus, who am I? I, I, I am low. I am, I am, it is why we can worship. It is why we can bow. I'm not bowing to nobody but Jesus. You understand? Humility is a discipleship tool. It is an evangelistic tool. And so I'm just encouraging you to prioritize humility because people can sense arrogance in the church. People can sense pride in the church, right? Let's prioritize humility. So, so Paul is preaching. He continues to tell the truth of what happened. Look at verse 28. He says, And though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. He paints this picture of a tree. Uh, he understood that his audience uh, was very familiar with the passage in Deuteronomy that says that it is cursed for a man to be hung from a tree. And he's painting this picture of a God who would be willing to be cursed that we could be blessed. No disrespect, but this is what sets our faith apart from all the others because I have yet to read in the Quran where it says that Allah died so I could live. Haven't read it. I have yet to read in the Tripitaka that Buddha died so that I could live. I have yet to read in the Veda that Vishnu died so that I could live. But when I peel open my Bible, it describes a God. Think about this for a second. Who was willing to die so that you specifically could live. That, that means if yours was the only sin, he still would have got on the cross for you, right? So that you wouldn't have to bleed the same way and suffer the same way. And so that not only could you have life, but you could have it more abundantly and you could have it forever. Uh, the, the reality is that the gospel is actually like not a hard sell. If we just would say what happened, just say what happened. Paul says Jesus died and was buried, but he says that's not how the story ends. Look at verse 30, but God. Those are two words that ought to be etched on the tongue of every believer, but God. I was drowning in my sin, sinking to rise no more, but God. I, 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 I struggle with depression, sometimes don't want to get up out of bed, but God. I, I've done so much wrong in my life and had so much wrong done to me, but God. Everybody has a but God story if you know Jesus. He says even, even though man did his best to fight against God, even to kill him, he says, but God was straighter than man's sin and rebellion. 
And so Jesus rose from the grave, winning over sin and death. But God raised him from the dead. That was your moment to shout hallelujah. You missed it, but I'll give it to you again. Don't worry about it. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So, so this is cool. Paul, Paul doesn't just say, like, listen, Jesus didn't stay dead. But Paul says there were witnesses. And the, the, the witnesses are a really critical part. Paul says, you don't just have to take my word for it, right? There, there are others, other people who have seen Jesus and heard Jesus and experienced Jesus. It's one thing if one person tells like this outlandish story, right? But if there are many people who say, I too have seen Jesus, I too have heard Jesus, I too have experienced Jesus, you may look and say, I can't believe Judah with his long hair and piercings and outlandish way of dressing, but when straight lace suit wearing Bill <laughs> says, I've seen Jesus, huh? when Susan from finance says, I, I know Jesus, when Cat loving Kathy says, I too love, it, it gives the opportunity for people to, to inquire, what, what would happen if I met Jesus? If you don't know Jesus and you're here today or you're watching with us, I just want to encourage you, make that inquiry. Interrogate that. What would happen if I met Jesus? Paul says, it's not just me, but others as well. Paul says, the same way Jesus blessed these others, he can bless you too. And this is the powerful part about witnessing is that these witnesses didn't just say, yeah, Jesus was killed and buried and resurrected, but they, they talk about how that impacted them and how it can impact others. Look at verse 38. Paul says, so let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, watch this, to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I just want to read that last part again. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything that they could not be freed from from the law. Paul is teaching us that Christianity is not about sin management. Some of us look at it as a system to try to manage our system of ethics. That's not what it's about. Paul says it's about realizing that you need Jesus and realizing that you need him because you can't be good enough. You can't behave well enough. You can't be perfect enough to earn your way into heaven. So God says now perfection is no longer the requirement. He says all you need to do in order to have your life changed by Jesus is to believe that he can. That, that, that this old system that the Jewish people were a part of where you had to earn God's favor and earn God's love and, and lay out sacrifices, he says Jesus came and shook that whole thing up and changed it. I love that the text says everyone has the potential to be saved from everything. Think about how long that list of everything is. Think about just how long your list of everything is right? We don't have enough paper, right? And so Paul's point is that Jesus can fully save. 
When everything else fails us, he doesn't. And there were some in Paul's immediate audience and and some today that that just refused to embrace the salvation of Jesus in the secret places of their heart because they want a salvation of their own making. Because folks want to be saved in the old-fashioned way. They want to earn it. I don't blame you. We live in a world that prioritizes capitalism and teaches us that you have to earn everything. You got to earn your money. You got to earn your job. You got to earn your promotion. You got to earn stuff. But, But you can't earn salvation. And your walk will radically change when you stop trying to earn it and simply receive it. Simply open your hands and receive it. Receive the reality that Jesus forgives us, and not only does he forgive us, but we are justified in him. See, forgiveness takes care of the debt. Justification puts a positive credit on our account before God. You ought to get excited about the fact, I got good credit with God. Okay, I got a, I got a good credit. I got an 850 with God. Now pray that that translates to, to this side of heaven too, glory to God. But I got, I got credit so good with God, I, I got a mansion in heaven. You understand? And Paul reminds us of the importance of leaning into this belief and what happens when we don't. Look at verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. This is a warning that if we do not embrace the person and the work of Jesus with our whole lives, we are despisers who will perish. Paul is really admonishing us to make belief a top priority. Too often, we make the ritual of Christianity the top priority. I go to church every Sunday. I go to the 11 a.m. I sit in the third row on the left-hand side. We make that the priority. That's good. We want you to be in church. We'll be here every week. But belief has to be the top priority, not the ritual. I read five chapters every single day. That's great. I want you in your Bible. But we got to make belief the top priority. And here's the reality. In a world that is always seeking newness and novelty and shininess, in a world plagued with amnesia, the great and true story of Jesus is enough by itself. I think about how likely it is that our church might be empty if you came in one Sunday and we ain't had no music and we ain't had the fancy lights and the fog machine was down, and the chairs were gone, and you had to sit on the floor, and all we said was, today we're just going to open the Bible and read the story of Jesus, we might have an empty church, right? But the gospel by itself is enough. The gospel by itself is enough. Look what happens when they heard the gospel. Verse 42, it says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. I hope when you leave Bridgeway on a Sunday, I hope You are begging to come back next week. Not to hear Pastor Judah preach or Pastor Lance preach. Not to hear your favorite song by by Lincoln Brewster. But I hope that you leave hungry to come back and hear the good news again. That it never becomes stale in your mouth that it never becomes something that you think you can gloss over. I I don't know about you, I want to be wild by it every time. I want to be be blown away by it every time. I want to be knocked off my feet by it every time. I want to be surprised when I get to the part that says he rose. I want to be surprised like I ain't never read it. 
Verse 43 says, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke, urged them to continue in the grace of God. I want you to notice that it is both Jews and non-Jews, believers and, and non-believers who are moved by the gospel. It means that the gospel is supposed to impact all kinds of different people. Have you ever um, had a gospel sharing opportunity and you decided not to share the gospel because you looked at a person and you just knew that they weren't ready to receive it? You just, you just knew that they weren't going to be open to it and, and you decided, well, I won't share it because they're not, they're not going to listen. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop assuming that we know where people are. You know, you don't, we don't know what God is doing in their hearts. So if you have a gospel sharing opportunity, you consult with the Lord in prayer and you shoot your shot and you hope for the best, right? I also want you to notice that Paul is teaching. It says he urged them to continue in grace. And it speaks to the reality, I think sometimes as believers, we see grace as the beginning part of our Christianity. Like we have a lot of grace at the beginning because like we didn't know any better, right? But then we start to think, but as time goes and as I learn, as I learn more, well, there's less and less grace for me. But that's not true. The Bible says God fashions new mercies for you every day. Maybe perhaps because you need them. Right? And so it's this idea of continuing to remind yourself that this thing called Christianity is all about grace. Grace is what undergirds it. Grace is what makes it possible. You cannot earn it. I, I remember I was in college. Uh, I had just given my life back to the Lord, and I was trying to figure out what it meant to live uh, a righteous lifestyle while I was in college. And I had really messed up. I mean, I really messed up. And so I called my fraternity brother, Jeremy, who I really looked up to. I still look up to him. He's a pastor in Atlanta now. And I, I, I called him. I said, Jeremy, I, I, I really messed up. And, and so you've got to lead the Bible study tonight. I was supposed to lead the Bible study tonight. I said, you got to lead the Bible study tonight because I really messed up. And he said to me, no, Judah, you have to lead the Bible study. I said, Jeremy, you're not listening well. I just said I really messed up. And he said to me, I'll never forget it, he said, you know, there are times where you're going to become hyper aware of your humanity and your broken, sinful nature, and you still have to do what you were called to do despite it. And I know that, that one of the things that gets in the way of us sharing the gospel is we don't want to look like hypocrites, you know, especially to our families. Like, they know, they know us, you know, without your church makeup on and your good heels, on. They, you know, and you get scared. I don't want you to think that I'm a hypocrite. But, but there are times where you are going to have to be aware that you are flawed and broken and you still are called to make disciples. The text says in 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine the whole city of Roseville? up in here. I don't know where they would sit. We'll put some chairs on the stage and hope for the best, right? But this is what I want you to notice. What did they gather to hear, right? It says the word of the Lord. And this is why Bridgeway is a Bible-carrying, Bible-reading, Bible-centric, Bible-endorsing church. Because we believe that the word of God is the doorway to transformation. If you're wondering, how do I become transformed? Get in that word. It is living and it is transformative. And what we see in this is that Paul and company speak the word of God. And then the Jews and non-Jews, believers and formerly non-believers, respond to the word of God. And then they go out and they proclaim the word of God to the people in their spheres of influence. And then the whole city comes back to hear the word of God again. 
And when you get to verse 45, it gets a little complicated because there are some people who felt a way that the Word of God had such a big audience, some, some haters who, who weren't pleased about it. But Paul and Barnabas said, and this is the new Judah Dwight translation, he said, I don't really care if y'all like it or not. It is the good news. It is encouraging news. It is the gospel, and I'm called to share it. So share it, I shall. Now watch this. Skip down to verse 48. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That was your next moment to shout hallelujah. You missed it, but I'll give it to you again. Don't worry about it. It says, many people were appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, verse 50, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, so they went and started talking trash to the influencers, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So again, what we're seeing is disruption. Things were going so well. We got the whole city of Roseville up in here receiving the word of God, and then some haters come and drive them out of the city. There were some people who just could not, could not stand the idea of being on equal footing with the Gentiles, right? Could not stand acknowledging that they were just as broken and sinful as the Gentiles. And because most of us in this room are Gentiles, uh, we can look at this and say, ooh, those Jews were so mean. But who are your metaphorical Gentiles? What group of people do you think you would have a hard time with recognizing that you're actually like on the same level with? I had an opportunity, I, I was at... Um, uh, Sacramento Juvenile Hall a couple of weeks ago, they, they want to start a partnership with us and they had invited Lance and he sent me and I went back, you know, this, this wasn't my first time there. So I was in there nervous. I was in there making sure everybody, y'all know I'm, I'm a guest. I'm not, I didn't decide to come back early. I'm just visiting. I'm just, I'm about to leave here in half an hour. I won't be here very long. But I was, I was in there and I was, I was meeting these young men that had done terrible things. I, I met a, a young, a young dude and he was in there for murdering his mom. And it's really hard to wrap my mind around the idea that my sinful nature is actually identical to his. My sin has shown up differently. But the reality is that I am just as needy, just as broken, just as desperate for Jesus and his grace and his healing and his love as that kid in there. And there were some people who just could not handle that. And they let it get in the way of having a robust and profound relationship with Jesus and they let it get in the way of kingdom building work. But if you're like me, and maybe you've struggled with that, maybe there are some people groups that you'd be like, listen, you, we want you to come to church, we just don't want you to come here, right? <laughs> maybe you're like that, right? I just would encourage you, be like Paul. Look at verse 51. It says, but they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Here's what's wild about that. It says that they are filled with joy after being driven out of the city. I want you to know, I don't think that the Jewish people came to them and said, look, Paul, we don't love that you're preaching the gospel. Would you mind going down there to Sacramento and doing it there instead of here? I don't think that they said it like that, right? I, 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 listen, maybe it's just me. I know if somebody drove me out the city, I don't know that my immediate next reaction would be filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> my next reaction would be, I'm going to call some of my cousins and we're going to have another conversation. 
You understand? But, but they were filled with joy. And what it speaks to is this idea of shaking off the dust. Which means that, that, that we recognize we, we're, we're not begging people to be saved. We're not out here peddling some defective product that we have to apologize for or manipulate someone into believing. No, what we are offering is the good news of rescue and salvation. And there are some people who want to hear it and some who don't. That's fine. This gives us confidence to share and then leave it with God, right? We don't have the pressure. It's not like it's not like God is keeping like this tally score of how many people did you get saved today? Five, go back out there. You need more. We don't have, it's not this quota that we have to meet, right? It, it's, it's that we get this opportunity to share the good news. And if they receive it, great. If they don't, that's between them and God. But we can move forward with joy because we did our jobs, right? Notice it doesn't say, I don't mind. Praise him. Praise him. I won't get in your way. Notice it doesn't say that they were filled with happiness. It doesn't say that they were filled with a good mood. Yeah, happiness is an emotion. It's going to come and go. But joy is this, this rootedness in the understanding of my eternal standing with Jesus. And the idea that that can, that can last and endure moments of, of, of pain, that it can supersede trials, that, that it can ground me in the presence of God so that I can smile though I hurt. I can praise though I suffer. I, 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 the old folks will say, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me, so the world can't take it away. So um, I'm done. I just, as you go, I just, I want you to go committed to saying what happened, to say what happened with you and Jesus, say it. I want you to go committed to living and telling the story of Jesus regardless of what you got going on, of how you feel, of your circumstances, so that you and others too can be evangelistic, joy-filled, encouraging kingdom builders and whole cities can be saved. We are called to center the gospel. And I'm going to invite you to continue to come back to it, to continue to be wooed and wowed by it, to continue to let it blow your mind again and again and again. Let me pray for you. Uh, Jesus, we appreciate your word. It is good. I love it. I'm thankful that it is transformational. I'm thankful that you illustrate for us just the importance of this radical thing that you did on the cross for us, and I praise you that you did do it. I praise you for its implications in our lives, and I pray that you would allow this to be a house that centers in on the gospel and, and that we would be a people that is consistently telling your great story. I thank you for the privilege of telling your great story. And I pray that you would help us to evangelize in ways um, that win people to your kingdom. Use us, Lord, in your name. Amen.